meditation on the Word of God. Um, well, you see some pictures there of some people in Bolivia, Matias and Mary. And this is just one picture of, uh, of uh, the last day at, uh, at the Santa Cruz. And the, the difficulty was that not everyone came back on that last day. We had more people than that picture, but it was a, a good crew and uh, real, real thankful for what, uh, what we were able to do there. All right, well, we're going to turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, let me invite you to stand as we read this passage of Scripture, and um, Elena is going to uh, lead us in reading this text. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse um, 25, through chapter 5 and verse 2. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Lord, we thank you again for your word. We are so privileged, Lord, to have, <clears throat> uh, Lord, your, uh, your thoughts and your desires, Lord, communicated to us in this way so that, Lord, we can have a greater understanding of who you are greater understanding of what you are calling us to. And um, Lord, help us now to take advantage of that by giving attention to your word, by allowing your Holy Spirit the freedom to mold and to shape us. And Lord, um, whether it's me, Lord, who is simply wanting to be a mouthpiece for this text, or whether it's all of us, Lord, as we sit under this text, Lord, would you have your way with us, we ask in your precious name. Amen. Well, let me now um, just kind of set the stage for this passage of scripture in one sense. And that is to say, a lot of times we come to this passage, um, kind of jump into this text, um, looking to, to identify some of the key things that, that, are, that are mentioned there, um, but we don't necessarily always understand it in the sake of the flow of things. And so our purpose is today, we're gonna look at it from the sense of, of, of Paul's argument and how, what he's trying to get to um, not necessarily to dig down deep into things like what is anger and what is stealing, although we will touch on those, um, and that would be a, another study at another time, but uh, we're, we're working through a book here. We, wanna, we do want to see the, the lay of the land that Paul is trying to give us here. Now, I'd like for us to begin this morning by turning in our Bibles um, to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and verses 14 through 16, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 14 through 16. The Apostle Paul says this, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. 
and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? So this morning I wanna begin by setting the stage for the text in Ephesians by asking this question. What does the church smell like to the world around it? And I wanna begin here by giving us three illustrations from the life of the church. One uh, more that's been in the news recently, a church in uh, Gaithersburg, Maryland, last week was found guilty, an individual in that church, I think a, a youth leader, um, a number of years ago was found guilty uh, of multiple counts of sexual mis- misconduct with minors. And, and add to that, it appears that um, at least two of the leaders in the church were aware of the accusations, but for, for whatever reason chose not to act on the information that they were given and report it um, to the appropriate authorities. And, and friend, my question as it results now is this, what kind of smell does that church now have in the public arena? Um, That church has been talked about on secular news stations and TV and is in publications. And what would it be like for Gateway to knowingly not communicate what they are responsible to communicate when there are serious considerations about some kind of a sexual impropriety. That says a lot to the community. It doesn't leave a good fragrance there at all. Another church, um, a senior saint having already complained to the church leadership that people were parking in the designated senior citizen slash visitor parking spots takes it upon herself to police those spaces one Sunday morning. And so she watches as a nice car pulls into the parking lot with a middle-aged couple and two children making their way to those senior citizen spaces. When the car is parked, she hurries over to the car, knocks on the window, and when the driver lowers the window, proceeds with a loud voice to berate the driver as being inconsiderate, unloving, and that he needed to park the car elsewhere. The driver backs up the car, pulls out of the parking lot, and then, uh, maybe an hour later, the pastor of that church receives this email. My wife and I have just recently moved into the neighborhood and are beginning to look for a new church home. Today, when we arrived at your church and parked in the designated visitor parking, I was initially impressed that there was someone already there present to eagerly welcome me to the church. To my surprise and horror, when I was met instead by a very angry and vicious lady who told me that I had no business parking in that spot and was told to leave, needless to say, I will not be returning to your church. What kind of aroma does that leave to those that are around in that particular church? Now here's one 
that I think kind of lands the plane in a little bit more of a outside the context of a church uh, scenario. And here we have a Christian family that has a 10-year-old son who, who, who desire that they want this, this son to be involved in a sports team. And so they, they, they sign up with the Castro Valley um, soccer club and, and they, they have their son on this, this traveling team. And they remember that the pastor saying something like this, find some way to get involved with the community so you can have an opportunity to spread the light of the gospel. So with that, they, they've invested their son into this. Of course, the son enjoys playing soccer, and, and um, that year the team is not doing very well. They're losing a lot, and the players are frustrated. The parents are frustrated. The coach is a little frustrated. They just you know, want to do well. And, and it finally comes to this, this game where um, this, this man's son is kind of getting knocked about, and the referee isn't making any calls, and if he is making calls, he's making calls that go against his son, and in his eyes, it's somewhat unjust, and the coaches, because they're the coaches of the team trying to encourage their team, are speaking in ways they shouldn't to the referee. They're yelling at him because they feel there is injustice going on. Some of the other parents are now speaking and yelling things at the referee as things are happening, and then that man's son is involved in another kind of clash and so he now begins to chime in with the other parents and the coaches, and before long, this parent is actually saying to the referee something like this, referee, you know, you need to get yourself some glasses because you can't see anything out there. And all the other parents are like, yeah. What kind of aroma has that parent now just allowed to take place about his church about his love for the Lord, and about the Christ that he serves. You see, the reality is that we do leave an aroma. <laughs> we do have an impression. We do have a way in which our actions affect um, a, a picture of who Christ is to the dying world, and so friends, it's important then that we come to Ephesians 4 with an understanding that what Paul is talking about is not some kind of an optional thing. If you are a child of God, you are in Christ. And because you are in Christ, then your walk with God should be reflective of the fact that you are in Christ. And so what Paul is about to say here is very serious. He's dividing. He's going to show us what ungodly behavior looks like and what godly behavior looks like because he wants to move us out of ungodly behavior into a behavior that would be Christ-like. Now, the reality is that living in a sin-cursed world, even we who are God's children who have been called out of darkness into light, that our walk with God is not going to be easy. It isn't taking place without opposition or without some pull of the world trying to squeeze us into its mold. But we need to remind ourselves of our position in Christ. And, and so Paul has laid out for us all these spiritual blessings that we've been blessed with in Christ that are ours 
in our heavenly places, that we've been sealed with Christ, that now um, his, we are now his workmanship. We're also the church that he has created. And having laid out our position in Christ, Paul is now pushing these Ephesian readers to live in a manner that is worthy of their calling, to live in a way that matches who they are in Christ. So to live our lives by God's grace with renewed minds, which means that we are now able, because of Christ, because of the Holy Spirit, because of the illumination that we get from him, and we can see now how the ungodliness is still, might want to say, lingering. It's paid for, but there are habits of our sinful nature that we bring into our walk with Christ. It's there, and he wants us now, through the word of God, to humble ourselves before it so that we can live in a way, we can walk in a way that would reflect this, this new nature, this new life that we have in Christ. And so this, this is an ongoing process, friends. And so Paul, in this passage, now is going to help us to put on Christ purposefully and carefully, and he's gonna, first of all, I'm, I'm gonna say we're gonna look at four motivations for this that he gives us in the course of this passage, and then he's gonna give us five examples or exhortations to show us what this looks like. And what he, what he has before us really is, is a description of, of interaction uh, within the body of Christ. As the body of Christ is, is either out in the world or it's together, these are things that we need to be working on, but there are some motives that are gonna help us to do that. So let's first of all focus in on the four motives that he gives us um, to help us with this worthy walk. And we're gonna kind of stretch outside the context of this passage as well as look in the context of this passage to see the motivations that are there. First of all, here's the first motivation. We don't want to walk like the Gentiles, and that's from verse 17, from last week, when we were in that passage. It says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. The point there, if you remember, he was saying, listen, you've got to choose. If you're going to go on from here, you've got to choose. Are you going to, are you going to allow the world to fashion and shape you, or are you going to allow Christ who has recreated you to be the, the one who gives you the, the wisdom and the ability to, to change and to be like him. So there is this, this, there's something greater that God has called us to, and that something greater is this pursuit to be like Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, that therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And this Renewed mind is the means by which we can see clearly what God, has, what God says about our sinful habits. And so day by day, he is going to be um, removing these remnants of these old habits, and, and our goal then is to replace them with these Christ-honoring habits, this put off and this put on. But we are not gonna be able to do it unless we recognize that there is this renewed mind. Without a renewed mind, all we're doing is shifting, shifting basically sinful habits. All right, old man habits to what we perceive are going to be godly habits. 
What we need is we need a renewed mind. And this renewed mind ultimately is this awareness to see that God is speaking to us through his word. So we don't say, well, you know, I'm ungodly on this side. You know, I have no care for God. So the put on now is going to be I'm going to spend time in God's word. As if simply just going through a few chapters is going to solve the problem. There has to be this renewed mind that says, It is going through the word of God that is the means by which that God is going to grow and strengthen me. So it's not just replacing one habit with another. It's replacing a a habit because of this renewed mind. You can't remove verse 23 out of the the scenario. It has to be there. Okay, So we don't want to be like the Gentiles at all. And so because of our position in Christ, we want to do all we can to avoid slipping back into thinking and behaving like the world does. Instead, we want to think and behave like Christ. That's the first motivation. The second motivation, um, we don't want to give the devil an opportunity. Now, I'm pulling this out of the passage that we're looking at um, from verse 27, and uh, there it is used specifically to deal with the subject of anger, but... Um, I, I think there is, there's a good argument to say that all of these things that are being talked about here, if I am going the way of, the, of ungodliness, is the means by which I'm giving the devil an opportunity. And so we do not want to do that. We do not want to give him an opportunity. Now the NIV says, and do not give the devil a foothold. And that has actually caused a little bit of confusion within the church, and it seems far more mystical, and might want to say spiritual warfare-ish, um, than actually what is going on here. Certainly it is talking about spiritual warfare. This is all spiritual warfare, but the idea simply is this, that I'm giving the devil an opportunity when I choose to ignore what um, Christ wants me to do and I somehow slip back into old man habits. I'm just giving an opportunity. What kind of opportunity do we give the devil when we don't walk in a manner worthy of our calling? What kind of opportunity do we give when the church fails to make known the wisdom of God to the world. Well, we give him opportunity to tempt us to sin. You know, if, I, if I'm not willing to listen to what, what the word of God says, what God wants me to hear, then I'm giving him an opportunity then to take me further down the road of sin. I'm giving him an opportunity to entangle me once again in that sin. Now, I, I, I am no longer under Satan's, might wanna say, or, or sin's power. It's present, but I can find myself able to untangle myself from that sin. Whereas those who are ungodly can't. They don't have the capacity to do that. They're stuck in it. But there is the possibility to be tempted away and to give the devil an opportunity to entangle us once again. The third way would be to discredit God's work in the church. It gives him an opportunity to discredit God's work in the church. When, when people are looking at the church, they're looking at you who are part of the church, and you choose to go the way of the world, what does that do? It discredits the church. It discredits even Christ and the image that is being portrayed of Christ through you. We give him an opportunity also to cause doubt and to deceive and to destroy the testimony of God in the hearts of men. And friends, these are, these are serious matters. And so the, the motivation here is this. We don't want to give the devil an opportunity. We do not want him somehow to take advantage of our sin and to discredit the church, which is Christ's. 
okay? It's pretty good motivation. Third motivation is this, we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Again, this is used, I want to say more particularly in a certain area here of, of this passage speaking about communication and language. But again, this is a broad concept. We grieve the Holy Spirit um, in a number of different ways. But think about this. God can be grieved. I mean, there's a sense in which we must recognize that, it, it, that God is grieved. This is a, a picture of the, the tenderness and the, uh, the, the compassion and the, 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 you might want to say, the emotion of, of the Godhead when, when those who are his children will not listen to his counsel. You know, earlier in our, in our time of song worship, you know, Ilya was talking about, you know, having a child has, has changed a little bit my perception of who God is because now I understand a father's love for his child. And here's the father who's, who's grieved, and here's the Holy Spirit, part of the Godhead, who, who's grieved by us. And so what's, what's important for us to see here is that the Holy Spirit has already been talked about in this letter. Chapter 1, verse 13, we're told we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, verses 14 and following, we've been made into this new people, this church, by the Holy Spirit. Again, chapter 2 and verse 21, or chapter 4 and verse 3 and 4. We're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And then later in chapter five, we're gonna find out that we are filled with or controlled by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is very active in the discussion that Paul is giving here to the Ephesian church. And there is the possibility then for us to grieve the Holy Spirit, to, in a sense, cause him, if he could, to, to weep. How does that happen? To grieve the Holy Spirit simply means to refuse to listen to him and be obedient to what he is saying. Grieving is what happens in the heart of God when his children choose to violate his will. So it's to refuse to listen to him and be obedient to what he is saying. And then grieving also will lead to quenching. And that will result in a loss of strength and power. And that's simply because you're saying no so much to the Holy Spirit, there's a sense in which the Holy Spirit's activity now has been snuffed out to some degree by you. And you're no longer willing to listen. You're no longer willing to be, obey, uh, to be obedient. And as a result, you're gonna struggle and you're gonna struggle and you're gonna struggle. Okay. And so the motivation here is this, is to recognize that when we are disobedient, when we rebel against God, that it grieves him, and that's not what God has called us to. <laughs> we are in Christ. We've been given all these spiritual blessings in Christ that are ours in the heavenlies. I mean, this is, this is a picture of this wonderful reality. We are now his workmanship. We are now his church. We now have the great responsibility of making known the wisdom of God to this world. And when we fail then, and we do, um, he is grieved. And so we wanna, we wanna do all we can to avoid that. Do everything in our power to avoid that. Now these three have all been negative, right? Don't 
act and behave like the Gentiles. Um, don't give the devil an opportunity. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Now let's think about one that is positive, right? And this one that is positive is this. We do want to be imitators of God. Now that's said in a number of different places in this passage, but see, we, we don't want to be like the Gentiles. We, we don't want to give the devil an opportunity. We don't want to um, be the reason for divine grief. Instead, we want to pursue Christ's likeness. That's where our weather vane needs to point. That is the direction that our lives should go in, and, and that means that we want to strive to be like God. We want to mimic the attitude and the behavior of Christ. Notice verse 24. It says, to put on the old self created after the likeness of God, right? In true righteousness and holiness. Verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So like him, in the same way that he does, you ought to do it too. And then, chapter five, verse one. Therefore, based on what has just gone on before, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, we wanna be like Christ. We actually want to be that fragrant offering we want to be that wonderful aroma (laughs) to the world around us so like Christ who loved us and gave himself for us we want to be that fragrant aroma we want to be making known the wisdom of God because we are functioning in obedience to him we don't make known the wisdom of God by being disobedient we don't show God's glory by being disobedient. Now, we do show God's glory by God's reconciliation through repentance and forgiveness that he is a God who does forgive and that might be just a means of his grace but friends, we wanna be careful here that we are pursuing Christ and we're doing that seriously. So all four of these motivations are pushing us to take our walk with God in Christ seriously and this passage basically is a put off and put on passage and so what we're going to move to now are five exhortations or five examples if you will of the kind of thing that Paul is saying needs to be true in the life of a believer this is not an exhaustive list but it is a selective list and I would say probably because of some interaction and knowledge he has of the Ephesian church and the struggles they face and the context that they're in and the things that they have to endure. Now much of this actually is gonna be very much like Colossians 3. Colossians chapter three and Ephesians four seem to go hand in hand. Um, Ephesians four, however, is a little bit of a fuller accounting of these put-offs and put-ons. Now, so we're we're gonna go through five examples of of what needs to be put off and what needs to be put on. And I'm gonna talk about it in the sense of replace. One needs to replace another, okay? So first of all, truth, truth must replace falsehood, okay? Look at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, replacing Lying with truth was extremely pointed because in the, in the Greek culture, um, lying kind of permeated that culture. It was commonplace. 
But this instruction is also pointed because it is the problem of the old man. Our life before Christ was permeated with lying. You say, well, okay, maybe I wasn't, I wasn't a liar. liar. Oh, but there is deception. There's, there's things of, of not being completely honest about um, what, is, what is going on. Or maybe someone's asking you a certain question and, and you, you don't give a complete answer. This is all part and parcel with old man because old man is looking out for number one. Old man's looking out for self, okay? So lying was a dominant characteristic of the old life, and as a result, Paul now is saying unequivocally that there is no place for lying in the church. Now, if you look around at today's culture, you'll see that there is still lying that is oozing um, all over the place. Deception, falsehood. Let me give you a few examples from the um, from the world of dental hygiene. So where did that come from, right? From the world of dental hygiene, um, the commercial would say, use XYZ toothpaste and your teeth will shine with a magnetism that will draw people to love you. Your whole life will change. You know, bing! You remember that? Some of you older people like me will remember the Colgate. Bing! Right? It's like, wow, everyone's going to see my teeth and I'm just going to be popular. Okay? Um, it's a lie. Much, much of what you see in commercials are not exactly telling you the whole truth, right? Um, you know, you all wonder, you know, this, this, you know, the, the new tide. So the people of, 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 that are making the new tide, are they telling you that the old tide was really that bad? That you shouldn't have bought it? You know, I mean, it's, what's going on there? It's, these are all just gimmicks to get you to buy stuff, Right? From the world of health and diet, this berry will stop aging and will restore your body to perfect health. Just eat more of this particular berry. And that's, you know, that was that last year's, and this year's it's going to be a nut, and next year it's going to be, I'm waiting for them to say, coffee is going to be the solution, and I will jump on that bandwagon very, very quickly. Um, from the world of exercise, right, this one piece of exercise equipment is all that you will ever need. Just half an hour every day, and will you, you will lose those thighs, that gut, that chin, fill in the blank, right? And I really think that, that when they, they ship off these exercise equipments from this, these infomercial sites, right, they should have an already prepared um, garage sale packaging guide kit. Because you know that eventually, it's going to be on your driveway and you're going to be trying to sell it, right? And so they're trying to help you with that. From the world of politics, um, if you vote for me, I promise that I will do X, Y, Z. That thing you want me to do, whatever it is, I promise to do it, right? Um, you won't have to pay any more for your health care and you'll be able to keep the same doctor. Um, and that's just... That's just one of many things through the years of politics. It's just all sorts of promises, 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 promises. But ultimately, they're just kind of veiled lies. Because ultimately, what do they want? They want your vote. Okay? From the world of sport. Probably one of the worst examples of lies and deception came from cyclist Lance Armstrong. Now, he was the poster boy for athletes as well as for fighting cancer for a number of years. And he won the Tour de France, what, seven times? 
um, consecutive times, and he, he established the Livestrong Foundation, which did a lot, and I think still does a lot of good. But he was exposed as one who was actually doping, although he denied it, denied it, denied it. And here's what um, one article said. Um, I should say the authorities said, it was reported in this article, that the, the, what he was doing was the most sophisticated, professionalized, and successful doping program that sports has ever seen. In 2013, after repeated denials, Armstrong finally admitted to doping. Um, I think it was on the Oprah Winfrey show. That wasn't self-serving at all, was it? But, um, but you know, the point here is this, that for years he was, he was denying it, denying it, and presenting himself to be the champion, and you're just like, why did I get that Livestrong bracelet? You know? Um, it's just it's deception. My point is this, guys. We live in a culture that accepts deception. It accepts lying as a mechanism to kind of get yourself through life. And let me ask you the question. You know, um, so here, here's, here's the thing that's happened to me a few times, and, and, and I just want to challenge with you. You guys ever been to Chipotle? You go to Chipotle, and, and so you, you, you get whatever it is you're going to get. I usually get a bowl, and I... Any, every once in a while, I'll ask for extra meat. And you get down to the end of the counter, and, you know, are they going to charge me? And I, so many times I have to say, oh, by the way, I got double meat. There's, there's this temptation to say, you know what? If they're not going to charge me, they're not going to charge me. But I asked for it. And so we're in this wrestling match to say, am I going to be honest, I'm going to be a person of integrity, or am I just going to barrel ahead and say, well, you know, it's their responsibility if they're a business, whatever that might be. No, we have a responsibility to be people who are truthful, okay? Now, um, I think, though, we also have a tendency to lie, um, even without thinking about it. It's, it's somewhat a part of our default mode. Let me give you an example. Um, someone comes up to you, and they ask you, it's a Sunday morning, how are you doing? And in your heart, you're thinking to yourself, my marriage is so painful right now, my children are not behaving well, I'm not sure that we'll be able to pay the mortgage, the car needs new tires, my toilets keep backing up, we have lots of spiders in the house, I need a shoulder to cry on, someone who will help me sort through my struggles, and you answer, oh, I'm fine, things are going well, thank you for asking. I mean, how can a church exercise its gifts and be interdependent, which is what he has already talked about here as far as the exercise of gifts, if we are not willing to be truthful about the struggles that we're going through in life? And so much of what happens in the church is, is that we become guarded because we fear what other people might think. The point is, all of us are going through struggles. All of us are, st are struggling with things, whatever they might be. And no marriage is perfect. No kids are perfect. All right? Everyone probably has mortgage or rent or bills, and they're struggling, and their jobs are going like this. This is life. And we need some honesty. Now, that doesn't mean you have to go down the list. You know, but you can say, you know what? <laughs> It's really rough right now. I would appreciate your prayer. And maybe after church, if you want to talk some more, I'll tell you about it. But 
you know, I, I, I think there needs to be authenticity and there needs to be some truthfulness because how can the church then respond and help to bring strength to all the different parts of the body unless we're willing to be truthful? Now, why is lying forbidden? Because, and using that same analogy there, it is a sin that goes against the body of Christ. We are in Christ, we're united, we're interdependent. To, to lie then is to undermine the body and render the body as dysfunctional. John Calvin, talking about lying in this context, calls it a monstrosity. I mean, it, it's so undermining that it, it, it affects the church in such negative ways. So the antidote, the, the, the put on, is to stop lying and to speak the truth with your neighbor. This is an active, deliberate, determined behavior because we see ourselves rooted in Christ and blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's active, and by the way, what you're gonna find throughout all of these things is that the put off side of it is passive, which means it's just natural for us. We don't have to think about it, we just kind of slip into that mold. The put on is active, which means that we have to do the work to put on those garments, to put on that behavior, to put on that kind of thinking. And so this, this kind of speaking the truth doesn't just happen by itself. We must exercise it. And friends, for someone who is not used to speaking the truth for whatever reason, it could be out of fear, it could be out of deception, it is work to say, okay, I'm a child of God, I've gotta be truthful. I've got to be truthful. I can't just use these cliches. I can't hide behind things. I've got to be truthful. God is calling me to be truthful in the context that he's created for me to share what's going on in my life, okay? So there's this need then for us to put on truth, to speak truth, and to replace truth with, or, uh, as opposed to falsehood, okay? That's the first illustration he gives. Second one is this. Righteous anger must replace sinful anger. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So think about righteous anger. Um, first of all, um, the phrase be angry and do not sin is actually drawn from Psalm 4 and verse 4. And it indicates for us that there is a kind of anger that is not sinful. A good anger, you might even say. And, and the, the psalmist is actually going through a difficult time because he has been unjustly accused of some crime or some sin, and, and though he knows he's innocent, he's struggling with the reproach that he is receiving because of this unjust accusation. And you know what it's like to be unjustly accused. You, you understand the kind of anger that would well up in you when you're accused of something you actually haven't done. So in his case, he is right to be angry but in his anger, he must be careful that he is not sinning. Or that will give now an opportunity to those who are accusing him to actually reinforce their ideas of his guilt. Now think about it. God is at times angered by the wicked as well as his children when they are not, walk, 
willing to listen to him. In fact, in the Old Testament, you find the anger of God spoken of a number of times. Jesus was angry when he saw the hard hearts of the religious leaders when this withered man with a withered hand walked into the synagogue and they were struggling with the fact and they were actually offended the fact that Jesus would be willing to heal him on the Sabbath. He talks about he was angry with them. He was angry when he went into the temple and found these money changers in the place where prayer should have been taking place. And so as he's turning over the tables, he is acting in righteous anger. And if we're seeking to imitate God or be like Christ, we will at some times get angry at things that do offend God, and there's a rightness about that. Now friends, that's what happened to men like William Wilberforce, who got angry with the whole slave trade and gave a whole section of his life to doing all he could to end that. There was, a, there was an anger that was righteous, that was channeled, and ultimately was used to bring that end. There was an anger by someone like Martin Luther, who saw this doctrinal error and this bondage of the, the Roman Catholic Church at that point in time and how they, they kept people down by these indulgences and so many other things. And out of this righteous anger, he birthed with others this whole thing we call the Reformation. There's a righteous anger, and, and that righteous anger is necessary and it's appropriate. So we must recognize that there's a place for righteous anger. And it is a sign of spiritual health and spiritual life. But what may start out as righteous anger can so quickly degenerate into sinful anger if we're not careful. So let's think now a little bit about sinful anger. You know, the, the, the passage that comes to my mind is Genesis chapter three, where sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to have you. There's almost like this picture that, that although you may be exercising righteous anger, it's there, it's waiting for you because it knows that your emotions are gonna start getting caught up in all this thing. And you're gonna take this far more personally and far more deeply and all of a sudden you're gonna come out and your reaction and your response to that unjust thing that you are righteously angry about is gonna turn so quickly and so easily to sinful anger. And so he's lying in wait, ready to pounce, let me give you an example. When a parent finds out that their child has been lying to them, they might rightly respond with righteous anger, an anger that would rightly lead to healthy and appropriate discipline and consequences for that child. But the anger can so easily turn sinful with that child um, by a parent being rash and harsh and unloving and unnurturing and and just allowing themselves to, to go so emotionally that they're no longer able to actually think through what they're doing. So you can so easily move from one to the other. And, and there's a sense in which here Paul is saying, listen, there's this righteous anger, but you've, you've gotta be careful here with this righteous anger that it doesn't turn sinful. So you gotta be careful, you gotta be careful because you don't want to be functioning out of your flesh, you wanna be functioning out of the spirit of God who's at work in us through the word of God, and so the word of God is fashioning and shaping us. So what is Paul's counsel for us here? He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. I wonder how they interpret that in Alaska, but that's a whole nother thought, right? 
Um, it can be a month, you know, um, or depending on the time of year, it could be something else. But the, the basic principle here is this was written not in Alaska. It was written in the Mediterranean where the sun does come up, right? So I'm catching myself in my interpretation. In other words, don't allow your anger to fester. I mean, it's not like you're standing there saying, you know, maybe, maybe it's you and your, your wife. You're like, okay, you know what? Sundown is today at 7 o'clock, um, so we better get this done now quickly. Um, what happens at 7.30? Do you have like a whole other 24 hours to figure this thing out? And so you don't want to be so literal. The point is, deal with it how? Quickly. Because you don't want it to fester. You want to, you want to give attention to resolving it. So unlike the ungodly Gentiles, we who are adopted by God as sons should seek to live at peace with all mankind, especially those whom we call brothers and sisters in Christ. So what that means is we seek to be honest about our sinful anger. We seek to root it out through confession and repentance before God and with the person or the persons that we have been angry with, sinfully angry with. And to do all of that with an urgency um, because we want health and life to be restored to that body. Okay? We, we want all the parts of the body to be working and functioning well. And so we want to quickly, in a sense, oil it and, and soothe it and give it a balm with a, a quick resolve, a proper resolve. And if we do not do that, then when you look further down this passage where it talks about bitterness and slander and clamor and all those things are the result of not dealing with anger quickly. So friends, anger in a church will undermine its growth and effectiveness. I don't know if you've ever been in a church where anger is rampant. It is, it is not, it's not fun. I mean, it just isn't healthy. And, and it, it's focused on things that are not growth in Christ. It's focused on you know, different polarizing issues. And um, so anger will undermine its very growth and effectiveness so very, very quickly. And so we must commit to be willing to do the hard work of loving conversations that have as their goal reconciliation of offending parties to the point that they are not only restored, but get this, but also, also actively functioning parts of the body of Christ. I think one of the ways in which we fall short, and we gotta be careful of it, is we might feel that there is resolve, but then what happens maybe when we come back to being the church again, there might even still be, you know, okay, I really blew it, and I know I've forgiven, but I just don't know that I should step in and be a part of this, I'm gonna be accepted, and we've gotta make sure that if there's resolve, there's full resolve, why? Because we need everyone who is a part of the church to be exercising their gifts for the church. The body's not gonna function if an arm says, you know, I was wrong, you know, please forgive me, but I know I'm restored, but I just don't know that I can feel I can be a part of that body like I need to be. And it's like, no, the body needs to say, hey, listen, you are attached. You need to function. We need you to do that. And so we want to be careful here that, that after a conflict, maybe some people are still feeling numb. We want to make sure that, that there's no idle member out there wondering if they're fully restored or not. We want to affirm them and make sure that they are. So friends, anger is so important to replace um, sinful anger than with a righteous anger and then dealing with anger and dealing with it quickly in, an, in a way that would honor God. The next one is this. Generosity must replace stealing. Generosity must replace stealing. 
Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, there are many ways that we can steal. We can steal from God um, when we fail to worship him as we should, when we set our interests over and above his legitimate interests, um, when we fail to honor him with our lives, when we fail to tell others about him, we can steal from our employers. Um, when we do not give the best kind of work that we, are, we know we're capable of, when we stretch our breaks and our lunch hours. I was, um, the, the short amount of time that I worked at um, Federal Express, it just, it was sad to me how, how much the workers that, not all of them, but a number of them just would really kind of stretch things. And not only that, but how much those people that were stretched were accommodated by those who were overseeing them. So that the people who are trying to be people of integrity were almost like weird people for doing what is right. Um, it, was, it was an interesting dynamic um, that I'm thankful that I was able to experience and to see um, because it is, it is so natural to want to stretch breaks and lunch hours um, when, we, when we pad our own expense accounts, um, when we pilfer little things and take them home for our own use. We steal when we borrow from well-meaning people and do not repay them. We steal when we underreport on our income taxes. We steal when the tools in our toolbox or the kitchen utensils in our cupboards and drawers uh, have a Sharpie label with another person's name on them. Sometimes we need to do a little inventory now and again to figure out what we have. Now, it's very likely that Paul is addressing a problem that the Ephesian people were actually struggling with here, that there was a problem that was an old man problem of stealing. And in a culture where there is no welfare, um, stealing was very rampant. It was pretty standard for people to do that because people need to eat and people need things in order to survive. And so the poor in particular would, um, would be gifted and skilled and would take advantage of these things. But the point here is this, that now that you are in Christ, all things have become new. And although it may be culturally acceptable, in Christ, it is no longer something that you should be doing. There's a new way of living because of Christ. There's a, a, there are new values that flow out of that union with Christ. And so what Paul is counseling here, for those who have a habit of stealing, um, he's going to mention here. Let me ask a question. I kind of mentioned it last week. What is a, a door, not a door? What's the answer? When it's ajar. Okay. Okay, and it might settle little bit. Maybe as you're driving home, it's like, oh, got it. All right. Now, the, the point of that question is this then. When is a thief no longer a thief? I mean, if, if, if you go into your bedroom and there happens to be a man standing there and he's got all black on, you know, he's got a, a mask on, he's black, and he's standing there and your drawers are open, your jewelry's right there, and he, he had the jewelry in his hand, and you said, ah, thief, and he dropped it. He said, no, I'm not. Because he doesn't have the jewelry anymore. He's no longer a thief. Is that right? No. There's a bigger picture going on here because the thieving is a hard issue, right? These are all issues of the heart. So um, 
what's going on here and what we need to recognize here is that there is a process now to put on Christ. There is a habit of stealing. There is kind of a mentality. There's a, there's a bent towards stealing that is going on in these people and it could be going on in us and we need to be honest about this and so he gives us now this this wonderful picture, I mean it's an incredible picture of, of the antidote to stealing. Number one, stop stealing, okay? This seems obvious, but it is a put on active step on the part of a person who has a sinful habit of stealing, all right? Now, it doesn't end there. If all it was was stop stealing, then that would not be sufficient. But you know what, a person who's used to stealing has to say to themselves, I'm not gonna steal. Okay? There has to be a heart thing that's going on. There has to be a battle that takes place and a determination. I am no longer going to live my life in this way. I'm not going to steal. Secondly, there's the word labor. And that means to work to the point of weariness. Now I know some people who steal work to the point of weariness in their stealing. Okay? But the idea here is that you're working and you're exhausting yourself, you're, you're putting in, I would say, a good day's work. Stealing avoids hard work, takes advantage of others who have put in a hard day's work. Stealing has a sense of entitlement to it. See, I deserve it. These people have all this stuff. I deserve this loaf of bread. I deserve this little apple. I deserve whatever it might be, okay? Now, the third thing is this. Do honest work with your hands. Now he's getting really, really practical. It's not just stop stealing. It's not just have a strong work ethic, but now it's do honest work with your hands. When you create, you put your heart into it. It becomes a personal accomplishment and you begin to value the work that went into it. If you steal a loaf of bread, do you understand the work that went into baking it? If you steal a basket, do you understand the time and the effort it took to make it? Now, in our context, it's like, well, no, it was a machine that did it, right? But you have to go back into the context that was going on here. I mean, people were working hard to knead this, this bread and put it in the oven, and this was their livelihood, and they're putting it out, or someone's there weaving this basket. I don't know if you've ever done any under, underwater basket weaving. I haven't. I haven't done any above water basket weaving. But even so, it looks really hard. I know we joke about it as a class and that kind of stuff, but you know what's like, oh, it goes here. I mean, I have a hard enough trying, trying to get the things you know, from my chairs on my deck to trying to work and be comfortable. That, that's hard, and it takes work. So when you are creative, when you're working with your hands, you begin to understand the value of hard work and the value of, of creation and how your stealing was a, a far greater um, might want to say sin and had far greater rippling effects than maybe you even imagined. But that's not even the end. It's not just work with your hands. Now he says, once you've worked with your hands, share your work with others. <laughs> Give it away. <laughs> How can I do that? I'm used to stealing, 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 stealing. Now it's create and give to others. Be generous, be generous. Be generous. And it's really helpful here to see that the antidote, the ultimate antidote to stealing is a generosity that is born out of hard, handcrafted work. It is the freedom to give away 
what we've created through sweat and hard work. And friends, ultimately, the key for us is to realize that nothing is our own, that we're all simply stewards of what God has given us. So we are not to be like the world in this way. We're to put off this this sinful habit of stealing in whatever form it comes in, and we are to be renewed in our mind to think about that and to see it for what it really is and to see what, what he says about what it means to walk in Christ and to be like Christ, and so we are to put on these behaviors and to value them, the work that he's given us to do. And then with what we have, to be generous. There's lots of ways to be generous, and you guys do it. When someone is sick or coming out of the hospital or there's been some kind of a difficulty in the family and we ask for meals, you guys are quick to sign up. It's a blessing. It shows generosity. Last week we took a love offering for our Bolivia missions trip. We got over $3,000 from our church family in a love offering. It's a blessing, it's fantastic. We praise the Lord for his goodness there. Just saying there's a generosity and and generosity is a wonderful attribute for the body of Christ but it is also an antidote to stealing. Because once you start stealing, you don't want to be generous anymore because stealing is all about getting stuff for yourself. All right, next one is this. Edifying language must replace corrupt language. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up um, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So let's think about corrupting talk, first of all. Um, The idea of this word corrupting, um, the idea of is is, is, it's fruit that is rotting, that's the idea. It could be talking about something that is rotting, something that's putrid, something that is filthy. That's the kind of stuff that comes out of the mouth. And so although it would include things like obscene language, um, it goes far deeper than simply that. Um, the emphasis is more on the kind of language that runs others down and delights in their weariness. It is said that Augustine, um, the church father, hung this saying in his dining room wall. It wasn't his saying, but it was a saying. He who speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. May not be a bad idea, guys. Hang that one up in your dining room or in your kitchen or in your living room or in your car or whatever it might be. Um, He who speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. So what do you say among friends about others that God would not be pleased about? How do you talk to your coworkers? How do you talk to your spouse, to your children? Is it rot, is it venom, is it filth? Friends, that's the way of the ungodly, that's not the way of Christ. And there's this corrupt communication, this, this, this rotten language, this rotten speech that takes place, that's old man. And friends, there's, there's a lingering habit that we bring into our Christian walk that is present, and he wants us to put it off. He wants us to see it for what it is. 
And then there's edifying talk. This is where he wants us to go. Words that give life. Words that build others up rather than tear them down. Words that are appropriate for the occasion, he says. There's a right time and place to say some hard things. There's a wrong place to have that conversation. And we need grace and we need wisdom to think what is best for that person in that situation, not just about our convenience or our sinful, angry pride that wants to somehow jump on them and get on their case. So what's appropriate for the occasion? Also, that they may give grace to those who hear. The gift of grace is is a gospel-centered word that pushes you to pursue Christ with your life. So these words of grace are words that are, that are helping them to see their life in the context of their Christian walk and pushing them and encouraging them to pursue Christ. Those are words of grace. Those are words of help. And they are constructive words that seek to encourage this person to do what is right. And so as, we, as I was going through this passage, you just immediately am reminded of what James says about the power of the tongue. And he says the power of the tongue has, it has the power for good and for evil. And he says it's like, a, it's like the bit that is put into the mouth of a horse and you're able to, to guide that horse with this little bit. That's exactly what the tongue can do. It's like the rudder of a large ship that steers this ship in the right direction. It's like a fire that so quickly can destroy. That's James chapter three. Now just think about this. It was Hitler's corrupting speech that sparked the world into war and caused so much grief and destruction. There's a lot of people remembering the Second World War today. And Hitler's speech mobilized the nation. Well, considerably earlier, there was the speech of Jesus that has done more to bless more people than anything else in history. See, there's corrupting speech and there is speech that edifies and builds up. And friends, what, the question is, what, what are we going to do with that? Are we gonna just follow old man habits and stay in those places where we, we're quick to kind of throw out things that tear people down and, and mock them or or you know, with, with some of your closest friends talk you know, privately about them, or are you going to say things that are constructive and encouraging and are building them up? The last example he gives here is this. I've said it this way, kindness must replace animosity. What we have in this last section, verses 31 and 32, is, you might want to say, a catch-all. There are two parts to it, and each section reveals its own nature. First of all, there's there's the passive nature of animosity. The passive nature of animosity. In other words, you don't have to think about these things. These are just naturally there. And just look at the list. There's bitterness. And bitterness is a, it's like a festering sore. It's, it's a, um, I, I, I think about it this way. There was a church I pastored in Michigan. Um, and uh, was 
well, there was a lot of different places, you know, classrooms and stuff like that. And, and I, of course, love my coffee. And I would have a collection of coffee mugs. And I would drink my coffee. And I might be in a classroom doing something or on a Sunday, whatever. And I would leave that mug there or I'd leave it on a shelf or whatever. And I might come back maybe a month later and my coffee mug is sitting on my shelf. And um, it's not alone. You know what I'm saying? It's, uh, it's got friends. Um, and there's a, there's a picture there of this, this kind of moldy, festering thing that really is an image of what bitterness is. Bitterness is taking that anger and stuffing it and letting it just kind of fester in the background. And we might even fool ourselves into thinking that we've dealt with things, but we haven't. It's just back there. It's, just, it's doing its own thing. But if I were to go back there and to grab it off the shelf, it would be like, ooh, ah, that's bitterness. And there's wrath. That's uncontrollable outbursts. All right? wake you up a little bit here this morning, right? <laughs> and there's anger, which is what we looked at here. It's the sinful anger. Um, there's clamor. I'm not going to demonstrate that one. That's fist fighting, okay? That's, that's, you know, getting angry with each other. It's the road rage thing where you get out and you start beating each other up and that kind of stuff, which we never experience here in this church. Um, uh, if you drive a Fiat, you probably would. I don't know about that, but um, then... Um, <laughs> And then there's, there's slander, which is, um, f- is fighting with false accusations. It's anger that is expressed through speech, okay? Um, so these, these are all natural. And, here, and here's the point, guys. These are, these are all things that we don't have to try to do. I use this example again. You just kind of use road rage, you know, when you're driving down the street. I'll tell you, this past week, it's been, I've had some, some doozies where I'm behind someone, I'm just like, you know, what in the world are they doing? And, 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 and you know, they might do something that really is dangerous. You know, when, they, when they're, they're in the left turn lane, this happened to me yesterday, the day before, they're in the left turn lane, and I'm kind of going here, and, and they decide to, in the, as soon as the light turns, to move from that left turn lane and jump in front of the car, which is me, and drive up ahead, and then even then they're doing all these strange things. And, and there's a sense in which it, my, my frustration, my anger is righteous, right? But, but there's a part of me, it's like naturally is, is, is wanting to express things. I don't have to think about it. They just naturally rise up, all right? And I don't sit around and say, okay, let's see, there's five options here on the shelf. I can be bitter about it. I can be <laughs> wrathful. Do you think that would be a good idea, wrathful? It would work. Maybe clamor would be better in this situation. Um, at that point in time, I probably already slandered them. Um, but no, the, the, point, the point here is this, that these are, these are passive things, which means that they're automatically in play because we have been so ingrained with old man habits. Even though we are new creatures created in Christ Jesus, we bring these habits into our Christian walk, that these are, these are there, resident, ready to go. But what we then need to do is we need to recognize that these passive realities then are to be replaced by active realities, and in this case, the active nature of kindness. Kindness kind of summarizes these three words. It takes work to put on Christ, (laughs) okay? And the more work we put into it, the easier it becomes a part of who we are. So that when that person does cut me off in traffic, I'm like, oh, they must be going to the hospital or something like that, right? So, you know, one of the, kind of a positive response. But you're, you're like, you know, I don't want to get sucked into this thing. 
okay? So let's think through now what it, what it means here, active, this active nature of kindness. Um, this attitude of kindness is reflected in our awareness of how much we need the kindness of God in our lives. Look at chapter two, verse seven. Turn your Bibles to chapter two and verse seven of Ephesians. I want you to see this. And just, I'm just pulling stuff from the context of Ephesians here to, to help us see how Paul is building on things he's already said. Look at verse seven. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He has already been kind to us in Christ Jesus. And so if we're gonna be like Christ, what? We want to also then be kind to others. Now we're not being kind to others somehow because we wanna somehow turn around and say, look at me God, woohoo, can I get into heaven now? No, this is all an outflow of who we are in Christ. We are created as his workmanship for good works. Now we're talking about the good works of putting on Christ and kindness is one of those good works. So the Lord was kind and he was kind to me and my refusal to be kind to others is an indication that I may not be the recipient of his kindness. If I had, I would want to pass it on. Now friends, there's a humility demanded in all of this. Christians are not called to mighty deeds, they're called to attitudes of kindness and gentleness and forgiveness and tenderheartedness. Again, the testimony of Augustine, um, he's a towering figure from church history, it's helpful here. For years, he lived for self, he dabbled in false cults, he pursued the satisfaction of his desires, but finally came to know Christ under the ministry of Ambrose, who was the, the bishop in the city of Milan. And he says about Ambrose, it was not his great teaching I scarcely expected to find that in the Christian church, um, I scarcely expected to find that in the Christian church. He says, but it was that you were kind to me. It was the kindness of Ambrose that was attractive to Augustine. So I just wanna encourage you as you think about this, that sometimes we think, you know, we have to wow those people around us. No, we simply need to be like Christ to the people around us. And the greatest way we can be like Christ is to put on these attitudes that are Christ-like attitudes. And just a a gentle word, a kind gesture, um, being sensitive, being forgiving, all those things are all working together to help us understand that we do not have to be this kind of person that is uh, having this animosity. We can be more like Christ. We can replace that with, with what Christ would want us to be. Now you think about how did Christ respond when he was on the cross? How did, he, how did he reflect to those who were around him? There was a kindness in pursuing what he needed to pursue to get to the place where he said, it is finished. The greatest kindness he could show there was to actually be sacrificed on that cross for mankind. And there's a kindness that he is calling us to. Now, I just wanna say in conclusion here, I don't have anything up on the screen, but I wanna say in conclusion, one of the things that we have to wrestle with is this. We must be committed to growing 
and changing. Okay? That is true for all of us. There is not a person in this room who has arrived in their walk with God. If you have, talk to me. I want to know your secret. But actually, if you have, come talk to me and I want to confront you for your sinfulness. And if that is true, if, if all of us need to be growing and changing, then we need to make sure that we are cultivating an atmosphere in our church where growing and changing is, is workable. <laughs> in other words, that we're not afraid to share with people, and I don't mean everyone, but to share with people struggles that we're facing. Maybe there is a particular sin. Maybe anger is a sin that you struggle with. And maybe in the context of your home group, or maybe there's a small group, you know, you're saying, this is an area of struggle for me, and, and I need your prayers, and I need your help. Or maybe you're, you're meeting with someone for coffee, and you're saying, listen, I'm going through this, this thing. I, you know, I, I struggle with stealing stuff from work. And it's a habit. It's like, I, just, I, I have to do it. You need to be able to talk freely about that and the, those who are in the body of Christ need to be willing to listen and not be like, oh, I can't believe that, and to say no. This is a part of what life is like in Christ. People are sinful, people struggle with their sins and they need each other to help them grow and change and to become like Christ. And we gotta, friends, we gotta maintain that culture because if we, somehow get to the place where we're kind of afraid to, to talk about these things, then we're gonna be a very disjointed, dysfunctional body. There's a need for authenticity in right places. There's a need for us to encourage one another to grow and change. So are you willing to change? Are you willing to do the hard work necessary for change? It's work. You talk about read your Bible, pray every day. If you're doing it well, it's work. I'm not saying you're not getting enjoyment out of it, you are, but if you're doing it well, it's like, okay, you know what, this is, I'm gonna take some effort here, I'm gonna dig in here, I'm gonna find more out about this. And the more you work at it, the more enjoyable it becomes because you're developing the right kind of habits. And if you're willing to trust God and be honest about the ways that you're, st you're still like the world, or have drifted back into the world so that you can do the hard work necessary for change. So we've gotta be honest about what God says. So as we look at even the issues that are here today, we've seen this whole subject of, of you know, being truthful, or having trouble lying, or being deceptive, or not being completely truthful. Stealing, anger, corrupt communication in its various forms. Right? Or just having this just general kind of Wrong response to life situations when we need to put on Christ. These are all things that we relate to, friends. But we all need to be growing and changing. We cannot grow and change independently. We need the body of Christ, and we cannot do it on our own because we need Christ at work in our lives. If we try and go our own, if we try and leave Christ out of it, we just become Pharisees, putting other habits in place of old sinful habits. We need Christ. We need the, the renewed mind to be the place that all this is, is now breaking forth in a way that will honor and glorify God. Lord, help us today. Um, this is weighty, this is serious, this is important to you. And Lord, this is uh, for us, Lord, a bomb of help and truth and counsel and medicine. Lord, help us 
to passionately avoid being like the Gentiles. Lord, help us passionately avoid giving opportunity to the devil. Help us to passionately avoid grieving your Holy Spirit. But Lord, with every strength that we have, may we pursue being imitators of God, being like Christ. And Lord, may we see our, our struggles for what they are. And Lord, may we move from the side of, of, uh, of these put-offs and, and begin to, to now take what you've revealed in your word about our, our sinful habits and move in a place where we are pursuing being like Christ, where we are putting on Christ for your glory. We ask in your precious name, amen.